Hello, season's greetings and bar humbug to you all, and welcome to a very special festive edition of Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and today's episode takes us 180 years back to snowy Victorian London, where ghosts harangue the wealthy into giving away a little more Christmas cheer. This week, we discuss the politics of Charles Dickens's famous novella, A Christmas Carol, in which misers, philanthropists, ghouls, children, and hard-done-by clerks conjure up a new spirit of Christmas at the height of the Industrial Revolution. And to do so, I am joined by Navarra Media's very own co-founder and contributing editor to the London Review of Books, James Butler. James, hello. Hello. <laughs> it's good to have you with us. It's really, really good to be back in the studio. So for those who might not be aware, could you give us a little rundown, a little precy of what happens in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? What are we talking about here? So this is uh, a book that's written that Dickens writes for Christmas 1843. Um, and we can come back to that question of exactly when it's written and what's going on at the time, because it's quite important. Mm. But basically, he's been writing his novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, um, in the way that Dickens used to write his novels, which was this kind of monthly um, series of supplements. So you'd get a chapter a month um, and it would be done by subscription and sales were falling off. Um, so he thinks, I have four children. I've got another one on the way. I am, you know, not the world's most austere man. So I probably need some money. <laughs> um, so he writes what becomes A Christmas Carol. And unlike uh, Martin Chuzzlewit, he, he writes it in one go. Right, it, it it arrives as a single novella, so it's published um, in, in this kind of expensive edition in uh, for Christmas eighteen forty three. Um, it's a very very nice book that first edition. Um, what goes on in it? Um, well, many 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 listeners will know the story of a Christmas Carol without ever having read it, or perhaps even having sat through one of the many many adaptations. Um, and that is that Scrooge, who is a miserly um, and, you know, rather almost, almost uh, caricature-like miser. You know, we meet him and there's there's one coal in the grate. Um, you know, he, he says to uh, a, a guy who comes around collecting for charity, what, are there no prisons, no workhouses? So this guy, not the world's most pleasant character. Um, he uh, ends up going home. He is visited um, first by his former partner in business, uh, a guy called the ghost of a guy called Jacob Marley, who appears with this kind of chain wrapped around him, um, and it's a kind of odd purgatorial figure. We can talk about that actually. The, these ghosts that kind of emerge from purgatory—it's a complex uh, theological question, which Dickens actually is not very interested in. Um, he's interested in the politics of it. So, so Marley's ghost turns up and says, "Look, I am bearing this chain," and Dickens says, "This chain is made up of like ledgers and money boxes and um, all the things that that Marley cared about in life, and it weighs him down after death like this." So he's visiting Scrooge and saying, "You know, you have taken too little interest in um, in the world rather than in money." And then three ghosts visit: the ghost of, of Christmas past, um, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and they show him various things. So the one in the past shows him what is in some way an origin story. So this is very sad little Ebenezer Scrooge packed off to school, um, you know, alone and reading in his 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 book because um, he's not very, you know, he doesn't have, his friends don't treat him well and his family doesn't, we get a hint that his father is quite an unpleasant character um, and Scrooge produces a single tear and the guy says, oh, look, you're crying. He says, it's a pimple or something. 
something. Um, you know, so so you know, so you get a Christmas present when we visit um, uh, the family of uh, uh, Scrooge's employee, Bob Cratchit, the Cratchit family, um, which include the very sickly young child, Tiny Tim. They are very poor. He's not paid very well by um, by Scrooge. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, they have a lovely Christmas all together and there's lots of, you know, love and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Christmas cheer. <laughs> um, and then the ghost of Christmas yet to come, which shows Scrooge um, himself dying unmourned, unloved, uh, alone, and, and so unloved that uh, his charwoman comes and steals the curtains from around his bed while he lies there dying. He goes through essentially a process of uh, reflection on what it means to have become so avaricious a miser um, through these through these kind of ghost experiences uh, and reforms and so he he bounds out of bed uh, you know after these experiences and, and casts open the curtain and says it's Christmas I'm going to and he buys a huge turkey a prize turkey for um, for the Cratchit family um, and and just sort of zips you and that final chapter is really extraordinary it's, it's full of kind of zip and life and the prose is incredible and uh, he's he's sort of almost dancing through the streets going Merry Christmas so it's a, so it's a tale of kind of Christmas moral reform it has all these questions about money um, what it means to love money and uh, you know and pursue money in the way that that Scrooge as a financial capitalist does. Um, so it's set in the city of London. London is part of the story. London is blanketed in fog and you know, all of this stuff. And it's, it's of course, politically, you know, quite, quite significant in that, you know, it has this kind of uh, impetus towards kind of Christmas charity and fellow feeling and takes aim at lots of the sentiment um, that you could find among people who are rather hostile to the poor at the time. Talking of the poor at the time, I think it'd be worth just dwelling a little bit about that context, 1843, foggy, snowy London in the grip of a kind of proletarianization, the uh, heights, the heat of the Industrial Revolution is all around us. And the Communist Manifesto is only five years away, right? These questions are very live. These debates around what it means to be a member of the ruling classes, which are being reshaped as Dickens is writing, are extremely hot on the minds of many writers. And Dickens is, of course, one of them. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what the 1840s was like to be writing in, to be writing about, essentially. Right. It's a super interesting question because this is a, a time of extraordinary social tension and upheaval. Um, the year just before 1842 is probably the height of the sort of rioty end of the Chartist movement. So you get um, a lot of sort of sabotage, you get a lot of, um, you know, just, just sort of general workers riots. Um, less so in London, um, often in the kind of new factory towns in the north, but it's partly because in London, London's a very strange city at the time. It's like, it's it's much closer to one of the kind of global south mega cities we have today, where there's these lots of kind of disconnected areas and people kind of working on. So there's you know much less sort of public transport. London is less London than a collection of towns, but the 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 jobs in London um, are, are not so singly based. So you don't get um, as as much of like. No, not everyone is out of work at once in the way that you get in a kind of industrial town. Um, obviously, this is the people, period of the People's Charter as well. So the Chartists are, um, you know, all around us. Um, so these are, you know, this is a huge working class movement. 
um, which comes about or, or gains strength really rather um, after the sort of uh, damp squib of the first reform act in the late 1830s but this is also a time of great massive hunger people are hungry uh, and <laughs> they are cold this makes sense sound quite familiar to some of our listeners but um, you know it's not you know it's not the, the thing that distinguishes it from today is that um, well one it's a much less democratic political system but also it's a deflationary moment right so um, actually people and lots of people are not spending because the pound might be worth more tomorrow so why would you spend today uh, instead of tomorrow and we can come back to this when we think about like what Scrooge is thinking about money um, but also it's a period of wage crisis so wages have kind of collapsed as well so it's a weird moment um, economically uh, uh, for lots of people philosophically and intellectually there's lots of stuff going on there's lots of programs for reform so you get um in, in you know that year in fact 1843 there has been the the commission the second report of the commission um, on child labor which is absolutely devastating and dickens a, a, along with many kind of you know forward-thinking literary people is, uh, is thinking you know what what's my responsibility here what do i what do i what can i do and lots of people were writing you know polemics and pamphlets or you know uh, politically minded poems. Um, Dickens mostly doesn't do that, but the question of the poor um, and the question of the the horrors of debt uh, and the horrors of uh, uh, poverty are very, very close to Dickens's heart. Obviously, he's experienced this um, as a kid himself. That's a question that we can talk about, maybe about how how much of Dickens there is in Scrooge, actually. But also, this is the era, the era, in fact, almost exactly the era of someone like Henry Mayhew's London Labour and the London Poor, which is an absolutely extraordinary collection uh, of just investigations of like you know of what it is to live life as a poor person in London. Again, came out through the eighteen forties in these kind of um, newspaper supplements. Uh, ex genuinely extraordinary book, really worth um, picking up. And then philosophically, lots of utilitarians, lots of Malthusians, um, you know, and lots of concern about surplus population and the indigent poor and, uh, you know, uh, whether they should be allowed to die, um, which, you know, which is, you know, it's there in the text as well. Um, so yeah, that's what's that's what's going on. There's also a big question about Christmas at the time um, and what that means. And in the background, there's this concern um, about Christian charity and whether the new wealth and the kind of invention of sort of the stock market and all these kind of forms of invisible wealth, which is big, you know, has obviously parallels in the story when we come to thinking about ghosts and why why Dickens opts for ghosts. Um, you know we. You know, that, that question of, of this new form of kind of prosperity and what that means for the kind of traditional bases of, you know, well-to-do people philanthropically giving and spending and sort of uh, uh, doing things for the poor. That's a lot we're going to dig into. And uh, first of all, I think it's important to kind of marinate a little bit in this uncertain uh, Rorschach-esque quality of the text. It's very rich in that sense because I think linked in some way prosaically to its status as it needs to be a crack crowd pleaser right it needs mm -hmm. to shift copies that it can be read both as this deeply radical text and as a somewhat conservative text right staging a series of moral revelations on the part of an exploiter and uh, not necessarily changing the fundamental uh, building blocks fundamental power structures that allowed him to garner that wealth in the first place right it ends with that he is as, as good a man as good a friend and as good a master mm -hmm. as ever the old city had seen or something along those lines and 
this uncertainty seems to dovetail with how how changes in the capitalist class is both conceived of and, and constructed and how charity is a way in which they kind of buy their moral place in the Christian order. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so one of the things that's really interesting is, of course, you're right that Scrooge is an exploiter, but he's not a kind of classic exploiter along the factory owner lines, right? He doesn't mm. have thousands of people working for him. You know, he, he clearly, he deals in, uh, you know, it probably kind of credit and exchange notes and things like that. One of the reasons that he's a miser, in fact, is that he probably, you know, believes that he has a, a, a an obligation to remain, you know, as liquid as possible at all times. So if a debt ever comes calling on him, he can, you know, move some money around and, and deal with it as he needs to. Um, and so he represents that kind of new class of um, uh, exploiter. And again, he is an exploiter. Remember, he pays um, Bob Cratchit, his clerk, 15 shillings um, a week. Uh, and if you if you remember uh, towards the end of the story where he's he's reformed, he um, you know he he offers a, a kid to go and buy this turkey, he says, I'll give you two and a half shillings. That's Cratchit's daily wage. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's Cratchit's daily wage. And so, so you know, it's, it, and, and Cratchit, you know, it's clear that and he can barely feed his family. Um, and, and, and so, so you know, he, he has that direct relationship. Um, but, but he's much more plugged into that question of sort of this new financial architecture on which definitely the prosperity of the country depends, and yet which is very alien to a lot of readers and that, that they don't, um, necessarily grasp. The other question here about charity is a really interesting one. And I think this is where it's worth thinking about the book as a commodity as well. Mm -hmm. And saying, you know, look, this was first published in this kind of luxury edition, right? And it's a very, very beautiful first edition. The illustrations are hand tinted. So each one of these books would have had to have the illustrator like hand tint. And actually Dickens doesn't make very much money from it. Um, because it's such high quality <laughs> that the outlay and the profit is not great. Um, he makes a little bit, I think it's 130 quid or something like that, which is more then than it would be now. Um, it sells about 6,000 copies. That's a big success. Um, but so clearly, because of its status as a commodity, it's marketed towards this kind of middle class um, audience. And one of the things that it's clear that Dickens is trying to do with this story is inspire a spirit of charity um, among his readers. And it's one of the things that, you know, Carlyle, for instance, who, who didn't like the book very much in some ways, he, he sort of, you know, was not totally inspired. But he goes out and, and, and buys two turkeys and, and, and it throws a dinner party. <laughs> uh, and this is quite common among, among the book's readers. And actually it gives rise to a series of, Dickens then does a series of kind of Christmas books um, each coming Christmas, again, with that kind of Janus-like quality of like one eye on the money, because Christmas money, great, but one eye also on this kind of question of literary responsibility and political responsibility to, to inspire kind of charitable and Christmas-like feeling among his readers. Let's talk for a bit about this figure of the miser, because that seems uh, kind of somewhat alien to our contemporary political landscapes of this um, ancient heritage of this Protestant work ethics of squirreling away your resources so that you can invest them later. But of course, in the book, uh, there's this symbolic uh, affinity between money and death, right? Scrooge is already a sort of walking corpse. He's mm. carrying his chill around him. He's in need of nearly of nothing, sort of no food, no warmth. And of course, um, when uh, Jacob Marley's ghost comes, he, he says, you are not, uh, you're not of the world, you are of, you're a creature of money, right? So when we think about the miser, 
I'm wondering like how we're to place that as kind of a modern audience mm. in our kind of bestiary of capitalists. Yeah, it's 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 a less common figure these days, partly because of the way in which um, our contemporary capitalists tend to be uh, much more in, you know, I mean much more involved in sort of um, conspicuous consumption and uh, the kind of display of wealth. That said. Um, I, I think there's a, a very old archetype being drawn on here. Um, obviously, there are there are um, precedents in literary history, um, Molière being the, the most obvious example. Um, but the miser is some someone who kind of crops up um, as a figure, um, it, it, you know, in, in in lots of texts. And it's because, and I think the very important thing here is actually Dickens provides us with an explanation. He provides us with an explanation in the story if we read it carefully um, when. He is uh, with the ghost of Christmas past, and the ghost of Christmas past shows him um, that they, they, they visit um, a, a ball, a domestic ball thrown by Dickens's first master, a rather sort of cheerful chap called Mr. Fezziwig, um, which is, again, <laughs> one of those great Dickensian names. Um, real, 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 really good at names. Um, and and Fezziwig is throwing this kind of domestic bull and we get from there to um, the the woman to which Scrooge was uh, engaged or betrothed or had a promise with and she says you know I'm going to break it off and um, I'm paraphrasing here (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to break it off um, because you've changed um, and he says, well, I haven't changed in what I think about you. And she says, well, actually you have. And you're full of fear. You're too afraid of the world. And that's the motive force um, behind his acquisition of all this money. Um, and it's such a striking line. And it's such a kind of psychologically perceptive line. And again, one of the questions about this whole book is, you know, is there a quest? Is there something psychological going on here that we would recognise as psychology? Um, to, to some extent, yes, I think so. Um, and and that that line has really significant weight about kind of fear and the tendency towards tendency towards acquisition as a kind of bulwark against fear. And for me, that is really recognisable in the contemporary world. Um, lots of the messages we get from mass culture say the only way you can be safe is to acquire. You have to, you know, get as much money as you can, secure the bag, as it were. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can do contemporary culture, see? (laughs) Um, Secure the bag, as it were. Yes. Uh, But but do you see what I mean? This question of, and and, and I think it's so universally recognisable in our politics, although not often remarked upon, is the ubiquity of a sense of fear. Um, you know, how will I survive tomorrow? What if things go wrong? Um, where's the safety net? And one answer to that is, is make money. And make money in that way that, you no. Know, remember at this time, um, Marx and Engels, you know, Marx is writing the philosophical and economic manuscripts, um, which has that um, amazing line, which I pulled out, if I can just find it. Yes, the the less you eat, drink and read books, the less you go to the theatre, mm. the dance hall, the public house, the less you think, love, theorise, sing, paint, fence, etc. The more you save your capital, the greater becomes your treasure, which neither moths nor dust will devour. The less you are, the more you have. The less you express your own life, the greater is your alienated life, the greater is the store for your estranged being. That is Scrooge. Yeah, that's That him. is Scrooge. Um, and it's astonishing. It's, it's, cl- it's clearly in the air um, because Marx is writing this um, not in England, 
um, at, at the time. Of course, it's pre eighteen forty eight, so he's 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 not here yet. But um, but yes, it's 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 so clearly um, a figure of the moment. And in its qualities as a figure of the moment, it sometimes ends up being kind of astonishingly almost cartoonishly frank about the kinds of patterns of violence which we like to talk about today as if they weren't violence as well when he, when he goes you know are there no prisons are there no poor houses right he's very clear-eyed about what a prison is for right it's to absorb a certain kind of urban surplus population so i i wonder if it's it's kind of gained a, a more radical air by dint of that frankness to a modern reader. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, I think that's right. And, you know, these were debates that were ongoing at the time. You know, the, the great presence in some ways in the text, uh, or the two great presences, are, are Bentham and uh, Malthus. And, you know, that that beginning of, of the 1803 um, uh, Malthus tract where he, he's saying, you know, um, well, you don't have a right to eat. Um, you know, if you arrive on the scene and great nature has not laid out a place for you and you can't convince someone to to give you some food, then you don't deserve or you don't you can there is no natural right for you to survive. And this this is hugely influential, um, you know, in the way that people are thinking about population um, at the time. Um, and 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 Dickens hates it. He hates it. And, and you know, Dickens is a weird figure on this in some ways. You know, Dickens in, in some ways not hugely necessarily sympathetic to um, radical democratic movements. So, for instance, um, you know, someone like Edmund Wilson, who writes a, a really interesting essay called The Two Scrooges, uh, he says, you know, that these these are two sides of Dickens' own character. Um, this sort of, uh, he calls him a manic depressive, and that's the thing we wouldn't do today. We wouldn't diagnose someone <laughs> remotely via their work. Um, but um, what he's recognising there is that that Dickens has this 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 side to him which thinks he's better than a lot of people, and it, it, Wilson traces it to the moment that Dickens himself, as a child, was in um, a workhouse and was in a, I think it was a, 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 so a, a blacking factory, blacking yeah, factory, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, where he was putting boot polish into a, a you know a, a tins, I suppose. Um, and Apparently, he was sticking the labels on the tins. Oh, that really? Was his job. Really? Yeah. Um, so this is this is this is very much um, you know this is this is very much there this kind of this sense on the one hand that this is a kind of big traumatic experience for Dickens um, this you know and and has a real sense of how brutal this is while at the same time perhaps being not so sympathetic to um, you know things that Chartists would say like the kind of total um, you know the, the 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 total equality of suffrage and things like that, but these are all in the background. And one of the things that's actually interesting about this story is that Dickens doesn't do some things that might be obvious to a writer at the time. He doesn't make Cratchit a chartist, so he doesn't give to any of these people a recognisable um, link to the time in which the story is set. They're not actually engaged in the politics of the time. It's much more archetypal. It's much more interested in taking, uh, in trying to find some sort of really fundamental story of metanoia, um, a kind of conversion, um, uh, that, that question of movement, um, uh, 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 of kind of internal change and the way in which like that, um, you know, then comes out from the, the, the kind of inner realm into um, your responsibilities in the world. Um, and this is why, I, you know, I keep saying it's a conversion story. Um, and, and this is, I guess, you know, or I guess it's worth saying that like this question about whether and how people can change is 
one that's really fundamental to lots of novelists, right? Lots of novelists are really interested in this question. Um, Dickens is quite unusual in thinking that they can. Um, <laughs> and how it happens is, you know, and this is one of the questions that Dickens is not always psychologically satisfying because like his, char his characters are often kind of slightly grotesque. Um, increasingly, I sit through British politics and think Dickens is actually fairly realist. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, really great realist in some ways. You know, I mean, lots of these kind of monstrous grotesques are very close to politicians that we have now. Um, but that question of like, you know, how people change, what happens, and whether there's a process there that is recognisable. Um, and, and, and in Dickens in particular, it often happens that uh, people are exposed to something. It's not, uh, it's not, it's often not kind of trauma, it's often a, a kind of uh, 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 visual thing, that they see something properly for the first time, um, or, or they kind of, they're exposed to you know, um, uh, 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 something uh, that totally disrupts their concept of the world. Um, and in a sense, like, that is, of course, Dickens, whether consciously or not, saying something about what he's doing as a writer, right? Is that he's saying, like, I'm, you know, cultural production can do this thing, he hopes. There is that, again, that sort of um, contradictory journalist-faced quality of, at uh, one hand, um, uh, it's deeply utopian, right, to be interested in what really is a fundamental question of politics, right? How does how does change happen, right? Because it, ha it has to happen at some point on the level of the individual, right? You need to have those conversations, right? Um, but at the same time, what is at stake, sort of narratively speaking, in the structure of the plot is Scrooge's soul. Like, that is what we as readers are interested in. Because, you know, if, we, if you imagine it as um, Bob Cratchit's story, it's interesting, as you say, as, as to what isn't written about, right? He is the kind of the archetypal uh, deserving poor in the language of the poor laws at the time, mm. right? He he doesn't, he's not a criminal. He uh, He's not a troublemaker. He doesn't... Um, he will not say a bad word against his master. You know, if we were to imagine it as Bob Cratchit's story, he um, goes to work diligently every day. His master is this notorious tyrant who everyone hates, but not even in the house will he allow his family, who also hate him, to say a bad word against him, right? And then suddenly, miraculously, one Christmas... His master has a complete vault fast, complete change of heart, and Bob is rewarded for his loyalty and diligence by essentially having his son's life saved and being lifted out of that misery. So there is this deeply um, deep commitment to kind of a human sympathy and to an anti-Malthusian, which is incredibly radical uh, at the time, when you see if, you know, how you know the people of Ireland were being treated, how the uh, indigent poor of London were being treated, how the people of India were being treated, but at the same time, there there is a sense in which it is uh, narratively recycling uh, the the myth of the deserving mm -hmm. poor in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think I think I agree. I mean, I think it's it's funny. You know, as you said at the beginning there, that we're we're concerned for the state of Scrooge's soul, or, or you know, Scrooge's con concern for the state of his soul. Mm. In a sense, what's weird about the story is that actually, it, so it has all these ghosts in mm -hmm. ghosts and spirits, um, but it actually isn't concerned with, you, you know, the moral question of the final judgment. 
It's not concerned with, am I going upstairs or downstairs in the yeah. afterlife? It, it's actually concerned with like how I'm living and perceived now. So the thing that the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge is not a vision of the fiery torments of hell, <laughs> but the fact that um, no one cares when he dies. Um, that, that the charwoman comes and steals the curtains off his bed and pawns his one good shirt because, you know, Scrooge, not a big spender. Um, and so that, that question, it's a, it's a weird one in that the, the supernatural in this story always kind of is actually concerned, um, you know, a, a, as a means of examining um, our human social relations. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and it's, a, it's very much of, 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 in keeping with Dickens's own Christianity, which was real and sincere, but much more to do with vibes than dogma. Um, he's, he's much more interested in the kind of ethical teachings of Christ um, uh, than, than the kind of supernatural claim. And in, in a sense, of course, that's one of the things that makes it interesting is a Christmas story um, in that, you know, there is this, because, you know, if you are a sincere Christian, of course, the, the really signal event is not the incarnation, um, but the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the moment at which um, humanity is saved, at least potentially. Um, whereas, you know, in some senses, you've noted, you've noted the kind of figure of sort of childhood and, and vulnerability running through this thing. Um, you know, it's definitely there in Tiny Tim. It's there in Scrooge's kind of childlike joy at Christmas. And I think indeed explicitly it said, you know, Tiny Tim, again, you know, effectively as a Dickensian mouthpiece, he's, he, you know, he, he, he says, you know, this is almost ludicrously pious child, um, <laughs> goes to church and says, you know, um, I hope my withered and frail body reminds um, the congregation of the reason for the season. Again, a paraphrase. Um, but, you know, the, the, the founder of Christianity was a kind of feeble child. And, and this is, you know, it's such an interesting change between... You know the you know the big theological question of, of soteriology, i.e., savedness, mm -hmm. not to do with this story at all. Or if it is, it comes in this kind of question of the identification um, of uh, the kind of fragile quality of of humans in general um, and of Christ um, as a child in particular. As Yeats will say many decades later, the uncontrollable mystery on the bestial floor and um, that interest in like that moment of kind of you know. God becoming fragile. And that, that, of course, as a novelist, is much more interesting um, and much more kind of ethically compelling, I think, um, than, than the question of savedness. Um, yeah, does the, that make sense? Yeah, the question of hell is sort of like boringly flattening. And I think there is this sort of... Um, the counterposition between like the, the purgatorial chains of Jacob Marley and this sort of shadow of the poorhouse, mm. right? When they say you know, many people would rather die, right? This living uh, this living death. But what is kind of um what's of concern here perhaps is the way in which Dickens uses uh uses ghosts as I would argue it happens in a in a lot of ghost stories now as well. It's sort of kind of one thing that they're good at doing is to is to use nodding at a sort of unspecified moralizing spiritual realm the vibes as you put it um in order to to animate and talk to and talk with the kinds of violence that um are not recognized as violence to talk to the poor house, the, the the potential death of a child who would very easily be categorized as 
in the surplus by virtue of his disability as a kind of outrage, as something that is of urgent mm, mm. Uh, need of kind of moral and political attention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the one of the lines I find most compelling in the story is one of the things that the ghost of Christmas present says to Scrooge is, um, you, you know, do you dare as an insect on the leaf look down on your brothers in the dust, your hungry brothers in the dust, saying, you know, it is only a matter of chance and arbitrariness that you are here on your leaf feeding away um, who do you think you are to look down on someone uh, or on a fellow insect who is, uh, you know, scrabbling around in the dust hungry and waiting for something to eat? And so there, there are just these moments in, in, this, in this little novella. And I should say, you know, we should say anyone who wants to read it, really, it's not very long and it's quite compelling and really very zippy. Um, Charles Dickens, quite uh, good. Yeah, yeah, quite good. But also, unlike quite a lot of Dickens, it's actually short. <laughs> good um, God. You know, often in Dickens, you can you can see it, particularly in early Dickens, you can see this kind of, um, you know, I am a hack writer <laughs> writing in serial form. I've got to have my cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. Yeah. Um, it's Christmas time, so we're going to go on a diversion somewhere sparkly yeah. or, you know, etc. And so you can see these kind of, and it's one of the, the reasons I, I find it interesting is you can see him working as a writer particularly mm. in the early novels less so in the later ones sort of bleak house very different proposition anyway but i did, you know th there are these moments of kind of extraordinarily compelling sort of almost vertiginous ethical um appeals and that say you know how dare you think like this and again this is, i for me i see this as as dickens kind of trying to work out his own relationship to these proposals because of course what you know Dickens's childhood is very much like Scrooge's childhood mm. and that you know that that matters Scrooge also however is and this is a thing that is often missed I think in some of the adaptations where they make him a sort of two-dimensional grump he's also very funny mm. he's also very verbally present he is intelligent and cruel but intelligent I mean that exchange with the sort of slightly baffled charitable man um, where he says, you know, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? By what you're saying, it sounds to me like they must have gone out of business. Um, you know, that that sort of thing. It's very, very sharp when he says, you know, when he dismisses Marley's ghost and says like, well, There's what... more of grave yeah, than of yeah, grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great pun that says, I'm not having indigestion. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't really exist. So his response when Bella says to him, you know, you, you are fearful, he says, well, the world treats poor people appallingly it treats them badly and he's right he's right and that's the thing is that scrooge is often very compelling he says you know <laughs> what he says you know when he says about the cratchit family why are they happy they don't have any money they're lying to themselves and this gets us to that question again often there in dickens about like the way in which kind of optimism and the will to um make one's life different you know, whether that's a kind of plausible avenue to go down, whether it's a plausible way of operating in the world, or whether it's just self-delusion. Um, and here, I mean, I think the answer is that actually, you know, volitional choices have really concrete effects in the way in which we live our life. I sound like a CBT theorist here, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's working. Keep, carry <laughs> but on. But there, there is something there is something interesting here about the, what Dickens is saying about the way in which we choose to approach it. Look, Bob. Cratchit, one of the reasons that Bob Cratchit is an implausible character, and one of the reasons that like he's quite hard for a contemporary reader to really, you know, 
grab onto is that he's insanely optimistic. He needs to be Kermit the Frog. Like, <laughs> that's the only way in which he makes sense as a person. And and when I when I watch the Muppet Christmas Carol, I I will know that I will I will finally know <laughs> you will this. finally get it. Um, but you know, so that's that's you know that there's something here, and again, this is this is you know one of the things that I think Marxists find very annoying about a Christmas Carol is that it's is its emphasis on moral reform, um, and I think this is perhaps worth us talking about a little bit. Just. Oh, absolutely. I, you sort of took the words out of my mouth because it was a sort of, um, there's this question which almost has a satirical edge of like, okay, what in this uh, contemporary alignments of power and who has resources and who can get resources um, and what it takes to overhaul the status quo as Dickens is seeing, right? He's witnessing living through this upheaval. So what would it take for justice to prevail? And the answer is ghosts. Um, <laughs> you know, this complete suspension of natural law, these kind of sudden miracles in the hearts of the wealthy. And there is there is a way in which this can be read as a satire because of because it's a fairy tale. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's what there's an interesting uh Again, that that Wilson Two Scrooges essay I mentioned. Again, you know, just parenthetically, super interesting that this was a work of really serious literary criticism published in uh, you know a left wing journal. It's in the New Republic many many years ago. Um, uh, you know, one of the things he says is that oh well, and, and he's wrong about this by the way. He says you know Dickens is the, the great cri greatest critic. Um, and dissident of the Victorian age and its hypocrisies. And, well, that's it, it's unlikely that someone so celebrated as Dickens <laughs> in his own time can really be thought of um, a, a, as embodying that role. And one of the things that, that's you know one of the things we haven't talked about and, and that that is hard to kind of really capture is how identified Dickens became with Christmas so quickly. I mean, I know he is now, but there's a story that lots of Dickens biographers really like citing, which is that when he died. Um, a young girl says to, uh, in, in the streets of London, again, it's an apocryphal, no one knows whether it really happened, but says to, to um, you know, a newspaper seller, Dickens dead, will Father Christmas die too? Because they're so identified. Wow. And it's, it's, it's that exact kind of <laughs> slightly horrible, um, uh, sentimental uh, uh, Dickens thing um, that, that, that's so, so much part of this. So what I would say here is like, look, if we, you know, if we were to sit down and put our kind of sober, uh, you know, Marxist face on and say, uh, and, and read this story and say, well, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of this, it sort of misses the point. Right, it misses the point. The question is not about kind of individual moral reform, um, you know. So Scrooge then becomes a good capitalist. There's a lovely essay by uh, a critic called Lee Erickson, um, uh, which it talks about um, uh, Dickens's primitive Keynesianism, <laughs> right? And so his, he, he's saying, you know, the thing, the problem is that Scrooge has stored up all his cash as liquidity, and in a crisis like this, what needs to happen? is that he needs to spend it. So by the end of the tale, he's become what Keynes would say a good capitalist should be doing in a moment like this, which is stimulating the economy, spending money. Mm. Um, and, and remember, you know, that this is, 
it's one of the things that kind of flows through the story. Or, you know, there, there are these amazing descriptions of shops in the story, mm. like full of commodities and fruits, and the prized turkey is hanging in the butcher's window. But this, of course, means that they haven't been bought by anyone, mm. and that's that's lurking there under the surface. Um, I think being concerned excessively about the sort of individual or, or individualized characteristics of a novel. Um, is a bit silly. Because so that's what a novel. That's is. what a novel is, right? right. <laughs> it's you know, it's like being um, it's like being concerned that a that, that a teapot is not a frying pan. Yeah. They do different things. It's not a work of social criticism, but um, and I think so. I think there's a dangerous sort of um, pseudo Marxist kind of folk criticism of this stuff, which is that um, you know stories like this are like pacifiers for revolutionary anger. And if only we didn't have the kind of you know the drugs of kind of mass cultural production, people would you know rise up. And I don't think people work like that. I don't think stories work like that. Mm. I really don't think revolutions work like that. <laughs> um, because if nothing else, revolutionaries read stories all the time and they're very interested in them. And you know whatever. Um, but you know. I suppose the question it raises for us is, you know, what do we think literature does to its reader? What kind of you know, messages can it be thought to bear? What kind of ethical questions bear on the novelist? And, you know, a novel is a sort of, it's, 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 a te- it's an imaginative technology of consciousness, right? Mm. The process of reading causes you to undergo um, these experiences, you have to construct them yourself in your own head using the words on the page. So no wonder, of course, it, this story concentrates on what happens to an individual psyche because the process of reflection um, it engenders is supposed to, you know, make you go like, oh, well, maybe I should, you know, because the question it asks is like, how have I come to be who I am? What have I forgotten? Because it's so interesting. One of the things Scrooge is doing in this story is, and he's saying to the ghost of Christmas past, you know, oh, I didn't, I didn't remember this. What have I forgotten about who I have come to be and how I have come to be here? How do other people see me? How, what, if I could stand outside of myself, what would I think about the way that I am behaving? And can I change? That too, I think, is part of the the utopianism of the text, which does dovetail very neatly with the, with the Christmassiness of mm, it, right? Mm-mm. Because... What is extraordinary about this as a reader, and I think will necessarily change from person to person, it is interpolating what you think happens uh, within the confines of uh, of his of his head, of his mind, of his soul, in that process of witnessing his own past, witnessing this kind of existential dread of not going to hell, but just this nothingness, just being forgotten, and when you are remembered, being a subject of scorn, because. On that, that's not spelled out for us, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we get hints of of the kinds of things that sort of sudden, um, I guess, class consciousness or moral consciousness uh, might attach to in um, in his childhood, in his relationship with his once fiance, in this sort of nod to a previous tyrannical father. Uh, but we don't necessarily get. A clear answer about about that, and that absence is very much an invitation to the reader to engage with the text and go like, okay, w- what would it take for me to shift so radically and frankly 
so quickly and easily from the position of, of I'm ossified around protecting my wealth to um, suddenly it's turkeys all round, Tiny Tim is fine, right? That's a that's a very quick change. Yeah, yeah. Very few ghosts, quite frankly. And, and the thing that the thing that's sort of implausible about it is that it kind of happens like that. It, you know, it it's it you know it it clearly starts and is almost completed as you've said. You know, quite early in the process of these ghosts appearing. I suppose what I would say, and the thing that was on my mind when rereading this, so I, I you know, I, I read it many years ago, and I hadn't reread it until very recently, um, is is how much it resembles for me a winter's tale, and of course it is a winter's tale. It is in the genre of winter's tales, the Shakespeare, the Shakespeare play. Yes, um, uh, it, it is in the genre of winter's tales in that it's um, you know as 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 uh, Mamilia says in that play, you know, of goblins and sprites. Mm -hmm. Um, it is there is a tradition in England of ghost stories at Christmas. It's a tradition that died that has died out and that we should bring back. Um, but it, you know, it, it it also it shares with that Shakespeare play something I think quite striking, and it's the thing that I find moving in them both, is that it's a tale of resurrection done through artificial and literary means. Right In A Winter's Tale, Hermione, the wife of Leontes, dies and is restored to life in a little theatrical miracle at the end. Um, you know, and it's a meta-theatrical miracle. It happens in a theatre, but on stage it's a sort of theatrical coup as well. So there's this kind of nesting effect that happens very often in Shakespeare. It's very interesting. And in this as well, the process of reading, we experience the death of Tiny Tim. Mm -hmm. right? We experience Bob Cratchit going upstairs into the bedroom and sobbing, much like King David, actually, in, when Absalom dies in, 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 in the Bible. It goes to a private place. Um, we experience uh, Scrooge's own death. Right. We experience him dying in this kind of frozen room, um, object of contempt and hatred. And then we experience them not dying. Tiny Tim did not die. And so there is this, because we read it linearly, um, and as readers we kind of go through the texts with a kind of process of identification throughout, we experience as readers that wonderful Christmas tradition of resurrection, of things going wrong and then being somehow miraculously restored. And it's such a key part of, of lots of the folk tales we reach to at Christmas. I think that's one of the things that gives it that kind of astonishing archetypal gravity that it's clearly acquired for, for so many readers since, and so many kind of consumers since, you know, lots of these people who for whom it's a, a tale that speaks to something and they don't know quite what, I think that's part of it. I'd like to rewind uh, very briefly to talk a little bit more about um, Malthus. His um, essay concerning the principle of population comes out in 1798, uh, outlining a thesis that was both morally objectionable and just sort of flat out wrong, which is very briefly, that um, human beings will always um, breed, and I use that in appropriate scare quotes, uh, more than uh, they can feed. And so um, if we, for a given value of we, um, allow the, uh, the poor, the indigent, um, to be given succor, to be fed, uh, they will just breed more and more and we will just have a larger population of uh, suffering on our hands. And so the uh, objectively speaking, uh, not only the politically expedient thing to do, but the just 
thing to do is to let people starve en masse, right? And he's writing this, see, the end of the 1700s. This is not a theoretical question, right? People are actually starving en masse, right? And, and what is so interesting for me about him as a character who has this hugely outsized impact um, on the thought of the day, on the politics of the day, as kind of retroactively justifying basically what people were going to do anyway, um, is that he is a priest, Yep. He is, this is, a, this is a theodicy, a theory of why suffering is in fact just and compatible with uh, the will of the Lord. But that kind of gets shoved to the wayside. And, and in A Christmas Carol, there is this very kind of on-the-nose battle between Malthus and Dickens of, of this sort of non-explicitly Jesus-orientated Christian theology of like how, what is the right way to relate to your fellow man in the kingdom of God? Mm. And Malthus's answer to that is it sort of doesn't matter because heaven is the, is the really, really thing that we should all be aiming at anyway. So, you know, if people starve en masse, it doesn't really matter. Thank God that's not me. Peace out. Um, Dickens is much more terrestrial about it. As you were saying, that he is very, very clear on the fact that, like, he, he looks at these Malthusian impulses and goes, Are you t you're telling me that you can look at sort of Tiny Tim, cartoonishly pious Tiny Tim, you can look at all of the Cratchit children, all of the children that his fiancée goes on to, to uh, have, and think and feel anything other than 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 love, than sympathy, than charity. And he goes, how like that's the ghoulish thing, right? And that's the something that um increasingly, obviously in the time of climate change, Merry Christmas, um, is more of an incipient concern. But this is where I find it so fascinating that the, the story tries its best to, to resist politics. Mm. And because that is such a central question of the story, politics is coming for it, like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's so interesting that, you know, in a sense, Dickens's ideal Christmas is one in which people are spending, mm -hmm. right? People are, are, you know, buying the big turkey. And, you know, there's a whole series actually in the in, in the book of these kind of weird drinks that we don't drink anymore, which are basically sort of heated wine and gin with kind of citrus and things like that, very Christmassy. Mm -hmm. And and at the time, of course, you know, as you say, or as you're pointing to, it plays into the, the sort of questions of kind of spendthriftness and, and, and the moral status of spending um, at, at, at that moment. Obviously, approaching the text now when Christmas has become, and, you know, this is something we can come on to, the status of Christmas post-Dickens, mm. um, Christmas has become this kind of extraordinary orgy of consumer spending. I think Dickens's approach would be quite different. Um, you know, I think, you know, that, that one of the things that he's reaching for in, in, in this discussion, you know, in this novel is, is, is trying to get behind... Um, you, you know, or trying to find the, God forgive me, I'm trying to find a, a, a phrase that isn't the spirit of Christmas. Um, <laughs> but on, that's what it. he's trying to find. <laughs> yeah. And he's trying to find it in that kind of ethical way. The conflict you're describing, of course, is the conflict between the economist and the novelist, mm. right? <laughs> and and this is one of the things that is happening. It, you know, it is that Dickens cannot imagine how you can see an individual starving and not feel ethically compelled by it. And Malthus although he is wrong, is starting to do the thing that will become political economy 
and become, you know, the so-called dismal science of trying to think about human societies en masse, trying to think about, you know, the, the dynamics which affect cultures and societies as a whole. Now, Malthus, of course, is completely wrong. And it can't be stressed enough because Malthusianism has, um, as I know you've written about, this kind of unbelievable <laughs> afterlife, sort of zombie series of ideas that don't go away. Mm. But really, he's developing the thing that will be taken up by you know, other thinkers and writers over the course of the well, late 18th, but particularly 19th century, as they, they really develop um, you know, a sense of how to do this kind of thinking about human beings as a, as a sort of genera rather than sort of individuals. And so what Dickens is doing is saying, yeah, I mean, that's fine, but people are people and people die. And they die in all sorts of horrible, um, brutal, miserable ways. And the defence that economists or, or proto-economists make is they say, well, you know, but we're trying to make that not the case. <laughs> we're trying to make, you know, things work better. But yes, I mean, so, so it's one of the things that, you know, Dickens, and, and again, that, that is there as a thread through Dickens is that he's just quite hostile to the idea that you can do you can do without kind of individual stories you can do without um you know the engaging in the question of individual suffering and the way it changes you because remember you know as i was saying this is one of the things that dickens is dickens really believes is that you once you pay attention to something the act of looking and the act of comprehending can change the way you think about it quite fundamentally. And it's, of course, one of the things that we're invited to do with Scrooge. It's a question, and it's an ethical question, actually, in the book is, you know, is to understand to forgive, mm. right? Do we, as readers, experience Scrooge's kind of life of childhood misery and his fear and go, I understand. Sorry, I know though. where you come from. I know how you've come to be. And does that entail forgiveness? Is that the same thing? It's a good question. It also asks the question of uh, what kind of psychic states does do you have to maintain in order to engage in the kind of you know, hyper-exploitative miserliness that um, Scrooge engages in, right? Because um, he's he's shown the the Cratchits and then the sort of tragic death of Tiny Tim, um, but a lot of what he's shown is is his own life, right? This is not so much a kind of a story of. Uh, someone being shamed by exposure to the real impacts of what he's doing. He seems sort of aware of the real impacts of what he's doing, which is, I don't know, kind of prosaically funny in a way. You say, like, no, 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 he, he, it's not a revelation that people suffer because of him, right? It's 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 more of a, of a metaphorically speaking and sort of symbolically speaking come to Jesus moment over, okay, no, what does that, what does that make me? <laughs> Which is, you know, it depends on the reader, um, you know, how, I guess, how valuable you will think that uh, will be sort of as a, as a question. I am interested in this figure of, of Tiny Tim because he is, of course, disabled and also chronically ill, putting him very squarely in what both Malthus and kind of modern economists, you know, as of, you know, 2020, uh, would think of as the surplus population, right? This, this uh, disposable, economically unproductive part of humanity that can be safely calculated out of concern, right? So I'm wondering what your thoughts are in, in the role of, of disability in this story. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that it's, 
you know, in a way that we might find uncomfortable if someone were writing it today, mm. it's a kind of pretext to be a moral exemplar. So he's a suffering child. Yeah. Um, who produces both exemplary, but you know, or, or thinks he might produce exemplary behavior in people who see his suffering. Um, as I said, this kind of slightly ludicrously pious um, <laughs> relationship to the world. Um, but also produces uh, extraordinary love in his father. So it's one of the things that, that that Scrooge can't quite understand is that I think the phrasing in somewhere is that, that he he holds him as if he loves him. Um, and and so that, you know, the, the disability yeah. becomes a kind of, you know, productive of a, a kind of, uh, you know, emotional excess almost. In, in So it's, it's an instructive kind of disability. Now, disability theorists today would, of course, tell us that this is, um, you know, rather a dehumanizing way um, to look at disabled people and, and, and making them exemplars indeed kind of diminishes their humanity. But Tiny Tim is a type. He's not a real person. Mm. Um, and, and again, this, this push, this is a, a sort of folktale uh, uh, side of the story. Um, and so, so I think it, it connects quite clearly to that. Again, you know, that, that phrase surplus population runs, um, you know, is repeated through, and, and, you know, Dickens is aware of how horrifying a sentence it is, uh, how horrifying a phrase it is, because it's, it's one of the moments of kind of self-recognition. It's when the ghost of Christmas present repeats Scrooge's words about surplus population back to him and he's horrified. And uh, he's repeating his words back to him in the kind of craw of this of this cornucopia, right? There's fruits and mm -hmm. turkeys and breads and whatnot. And this is where the ghost of Christmas present is standing, repeating those words back to him. It's, it's, it's this very kind of... Um, stark illustration of the fact no no, no there are, there is food mm -mm. it's just not where it needs to be in this extremely <laughs> you know on the nose way so i'm wondering i guess what we are supposed to make of that process of conversion as readers like are we supposed to identify with scrooge in that sort of a sort of a possibly crass way of understanding it but um I'm wondering what you think Dickens might have expected his audience to go through as a kind of moral process corollary to the to the one mm. that Scrooge undergoes. Right. Well, I mean that that comes back to our question, doesn't it, about what we can expect literature to do to people, mm. right? And and it's quite obvious that Dickens wanted this tale and indeed expected this tale to produce kind of charitable feelings. Um, in his audience, and I think that basically works because you know Scrooge, you know Scrooge is quite a compelling character in some ways. Um, he's definitely the center of the story in a way that that no one else is. And what I think, you know, although we may at times disavow it, lots of us see parts of ourselves in Scrooge. I definitely have a bar humbug side. You? I don't know about you, Never. but I, I, you know, um, you know, I, I, I have been known to sit there and think, oh, this is all a bit. It's bollocks, isn't it? Um, you know that that you know that side of you know like in particular recognizing that that side of us can be quite compelling, but can can so excessively come to dominate the way we calculate um, our position in the world that it that it chokes to death um, our capacity for generosity and charity and fellow feeling. What's important here is that is that Dickens recognizes that if we identify with Scrooge to that extent, we will experience some of the stuff that happens in that process. 
So yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think Dickens expected it to have a charitable effect. It did have a charitable effect. Um, it, it also had a huge impact um, on on the way in which people conceived of of their Christmas. It should be said that early reviewers, there's a sort of particularly sort of slightly mad uh, utilitarian review, um, or, or it's a sort of side note in a review of another book, um, uh, which comes out a few months later. That says, well. You know, what goes unarticulated in, in the book is where does, you know, someone has to miss out for Bob Cratchit to have a turkey. Someone else must go hungry for Bob Cratchit to have a turkey as if um, you, it was impossible there's, to conceive of this. Turkey, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but this is, you know, this is what, what he was up against at the time. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's just, it's worth saying that it had actually a really genuine impact um, uh, in that sense. Uh, and and uh, perhaps... Um, yeah, perhaps it's worth appreciating the context in which it was written. I'd love to talk for a minute about charity um, and, and this kind of uh, starkly different role it has in um, how we conceive of how power is wielded. Because right? when we think of, gosh, I don't know, Elon Musk, now a terrible um, example, but, you know, back when Elon Musk was pretending to consider solving world hunger and, you know, ditto a lot of effective altruists, of course, um, by the time Dickens was writing, you already had figures like Edward Colston, right, doling out his extremely ill-gotten gains, to say the least, to pose himself as a figure of philanthropy, as a figure of charity. So I guess, what are we supposed to make of this reformed character of Scrooge in the context in which Victorian philanthropy operates? Well, I mean, again, this is a question of whether you adopt the sort of slightly hard-headed and I think not necessarily correct um, sort of folk Marxist point of view in which kind of all charity is really just a, a sort of uh, disguise for exploitation. And you think things are, are kind of actually in reality much more complicated than that. Um, and one of the things that is an open question um, at the end of the book, um, although you know, the end of the book says, you know, Scrooge really did reform and he stayed reformed and, and whatever. Those of us who have seen people's behaviour change at the drop of a hat know that also that such changes don't always persist. This is the point, again, that Wilson makes in his Two Scrooges um, essay. I suppose what I would I would say is, is for Dickens, this ties in, or, or in this story at least, it ties in to, to the question of, of how Christmas is changing. Mm. Um, and, and emblematically... Um, you know, the way Christmas is changing is that it's moved from, you know, so we have these memories of kind of old order, an old rural order primarily. Christmas, very, very rural um, festival in, in that sense, right? You get it in Walter Scott, you get it in, um, you know, in, in Southey to some extent as well. You know, this idea of a kind of baronial hall with kind of vast... Um, generous public munificence of the local feudal landowner and everyone kind of trekking across the snow for the big kind of Christmas festival where you're all going to eat. And, you know, and these things sort of happened, sort of never really did, but they're kind of popular memories of what Christmas used to mean. Mm -hmm. So Dickens is engaging with the question of like what it means to have this festival that is now taking place in a city, that is now taking place among people who are no longer in that kind of older... Um, more agricultural and uh, relationship with the sort of local landowner, um, and they're in a social context in which, you know, clearly festivals of this kind are not being made in the same way. And so, what does it mean to have this question of Christmas being remade under our feet, 
And are we at risk of losing? And Dickens obviously thinks that it's quite a, a, a dangerous thing to be losing this sense that there is a moral obligation if you are wealthy um, to, to provide. Um, of course, it doesn't go um, what you or I perhaps would think of as far enough in that it doesn't affect the fundamental question of wealth and ownership. Um, <laughs> but that question of sort of recognizing there is a social totality in which you have obligations is clearly something that's on Dickens's mind. That question of how much Dickens is is reflecting what Christmasiness was like at the time versus how much uh, he's he's constructing it. Is it. There's a lot of reflections between his preoccupations with the, the horrors of the idea of the surplus population uh, and this kind of ambient question of loneliness that Scrooge is grappling with that, that finds its counterpoint in this um, collectivity, right? This coming together, which is it's not necessarily the smoothest transition because obviously you have um, a lot of Christmases taking place under the auspices of the private domestic sphere, which is very much going to have been a change from what was popularly imagined as a more kind of communal, less properly domestic Christmas. And there's a lot of these sort of uh, thoughts dovetailing into what is now deeply recognisable. It's like, this is the er Christmas, right? When Scrooge brings the big turkey round, that is the Christmas to which all of our Christmasinesses in some ways can refer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Cratchits, of course, are eating goose, which was the Christmas bird before turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and Cratchit probably would have been the member of, uh, of, of a goose club, butchers used to set these up and you could contribute a little of, of your pay every, every month or every week um, so that you could get a goose at Christmas to, to feed the family. Mrs. Cratchit produces her, her fig pudding and worries about whether it's, um, you know, whether the flour is right. And the narrator says, no one thought to remark that it was rather a small pudding for so large a family. Um, so yeah, Dickens codifies lots of these things that we now see as being absolutely Christmassy. Um, however, there's a claim that's sometimes made that Dickens basically invents Christmas, invents what we know as Christmas now. <laughs> I don't think that's right. Um, it's, it's clear that he's codifying. So if, if you think about it as a literary critic for a moment, of course this has to be the case because his readers have to recognise as Christmas what he's writing about. Um, so he can't just be inventing it. He has to be kind of codifying it. And perhaps, uh, and one of the things, of course, this is a book that's filled with adjectives, right? You know, <laughs> Scrooge is first introduced with, I think, a chain of six, seven adjectives, you know, miserly, greedy, grumpy, you know, whatever. Um, those aren't the adjectives at all. Um, but but so it's it's a, a book in which things are heightened and become kind of uh, 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 in kind of, almost as if you turn up the saturation on the colour, mm. um, which is of course an experience that lots of people have at Christmas anyway. The other thing here though is that Dickens is really creating um, a, you know a story about the spirit of Christmas, mm. and this this is the thing that that, that I think becomes really really important. Um, this this question and you know. It's there in a lot of his work that this is a moment at which like people start to treat each other as they probably should all year round. Um, and that's a moment that 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 comes out um, most at Christmas. The other I mean, the other thing to say about Dickens's approach to Christmas is that he emphasizes that it's a choice. He emphasizes that it's achieved. He emphasizes that it's something that we choose to do. And it's not delusional. In fact, it's often melancholic. In a piece in the Pickwick Papers, he writes about the fact that Christmas is a time at which 
you know, we hear those hearts that are no longer beating that that are part of our memories of Christmas. Mm. Um, it's not denying, um, you know, the melancholy of, of those experiences, but rather respecting them and saying, I'm going to make a volitional choice. I'm going to choose to create Christmas um, because other human beings deserve to have Christmas as well. And on that festive note, I think that's probably all we have time for. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, have a wonderful festive period from all of us here at Navarra Media and of course in the words of Tiny Tim. <laughs> do it. You said you'd do it. <laughs> God bless us, everyone. <laughs> See you in 2023. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.